Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Mai Nguyen, Vera F. Allen, and host Tiffany Patton, co-presented with Real Food Media. I'm Kira Epstein, the program coordinator for the New School at Commonweal. Today we welcome Tiffany Patton as our host in the first of three conversations in this year's Roots of Resilience in an Age of Crisis series, co-presented with Real Food Media. So Tiffany will be in conversation with Mai Nguyen and Vera F. Allen about the history of land theft, the work to get more land into the hands of BIPOC farmers, and what it means to farm regeneratively. Um, so Tiffany and I want to welcome you this morning and thank you for participating in this series. If you missed last year's conversation in this series, we had a series of three conversations last year. You can find them on our website at tns.commonweal.org. And in a minute here, I'll put the link into our chat for those of us who are live here today. You can always watch and or listen to all of our podcasts and videos on our media outlets, which include SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. We also want to let you know that we have two more conversations coming up in this year's series. They are going to be on March 11th and April 15th. So look for more information about those conversations on the Real Food Media website and on our new school at Commonweal website. It has been a real pleasure to co-present this series with Anna LaPay and Tiffany at Real Food Media. And we all want to thank the West Marin Fund as well for helping to fund this year's series, which is great. Uh, we are recording this conversation and we will have produced audio and video files available on our website. And we are ready to begin. My Nguyen, Vera F. Allen, and Tiffany Patton, welcome to the New School at Commonweal. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Kira and Ken and everyone at the New School at Commonweal for hosting this event, coordinating and making it all possible. Uh, I'm Tiffany Patton, and it's a pleasure to be here with you all and to be in conversation with Vera Allen and Mai Nguyen. Um, you might have noticed that one of our speakers, Pandora Thomas, is not here today. She was unable to join last minute and Vera graciously accepted the invitation to join this conversation. And I'm just really excited to get to speak with both Mai and Vera um, and learn from them. They're both experienced farmers and advocates for a truly equitable food system and world. Uh, as Kara mentioned, this is our second year doing the Roots of Resilience speaker series. Last year, our Roots of Resilience were land, seeds, and water. And this year, we're focusing on soil, sea, and solidarity. Um, we're going to keep talking about land and soil and rematriating the land um, and creating space for Black, Indigenous, and people of color to farm um, because, um, because we need to, um, because we really wanna change the face of farming and we need to really talk about like land justice. Um, it's easy to think that many of the problems within our food system stem from the industrialization of the food system, but it really goes much deeper than that and further back in time um, to the roots of American agriculture. And those roots are genocide and slavery. Our food system is based on brutal attempts to take ownership of land and people and remake it all into something that creates profit for a few. So it's no wonder um, that our current food system is extractive and destructive. It's operating as it's meant to. And yet there are many people like Vera and Mai and some of you in this Zoom room who are 
bucking those destructive tendencies and farming and living in ways that support a diverse and vibrant ecosystem um, that redistributes resources and power and cares for people. And so I'm really excited uh, again to hear from Vera and Mai, and then later we'll be opening up for a Q&A. Um, so for a little bit about Vera, uh, Vera is a Black Navajo mother, partner, organizer, and farmer, and the co-founder of the Midwest Farmers of Color Collective. She spends her time on issues of affecting indigenous peoples and all of our food. Um, Vera is working on food policy projects, a food fellowship, and continues to look for ways to serve the BIPOC community in the quest for land rematriation and food autonomy. Mai Nguyen is a farmer, owner, operator, and social justice activist. They grow heirloom grain, cooperative economics, and racially equitable farm policy. And Mai is currently the co-director of Minnow, an organization focused on land tenure for farmers of color within the framework of indigenous sovereignty. So great. Um, I'm really excited to be talking with you both. And I would just like to know, first of all, uh, uh, Vera and Mai, could you tell me about your journey to becoming a farmer? Mai, could we start with you? Sure. I'm, I was excited to hear about Vera, but I, yeah, can step into that. Thank you for the invitation uh, to answer that question, but also to be here with you all. Um, yeah, my dream to become a farmer, I think the, the shorthand version of that is that, you know, I, um, I wanted to my, commit myself to addressing uh, the two greatest challenges of our time. And I see that as climate change and social inequality. And um, I tried to figure out how I could bring my own skills or develop skills or what my contributions were, would be to trying to bring those two issues together. And, um, and it went from doing waste management to climate research to um, disaster management and, and then um, work in within refugee camps and then refugee resettlement and kind of through all those processes started whittling down and recognizing how important farming is in terms of affecting our uh, environment and exacerbating climate change um, how our dominant systems of agriculture are are contributing to climate change and also at the same time to uh, a wealth gap, a racial wealth gap, racialized inequalities. And um, yeah, my, my, my first touch point in really thinking about that was when I was working in refugee resettlement in San Diego, where I grew up and just seeing how important it was to my own community to have culturally relevant food and for it to be um, grown and using practices that were both nourishing for the environment, but also for the people eating it. Um, recognizing that a lot of food that was in the neighborhood, while maybe culturally relevant, um, were you know, grown with chemicals that were sprayed on us and had, um, had been used to, to, to cause reproductive and developmental and um, you know, physical harm. So I, I wanted to, to be a part of making that food accessible and no longer from, or I was shifting my attention away from at the time, which was uh, running the first California farmer's market that had a um, EBT, WIC and SSI match program, which has now become you know, a federally funded program 
but you know that it's not just about access, right? And I think this will probably be a theme that comes up in our conversation around equity. There's so much about um, increasing access and and really equity to me is about uh, equitable outcomes. And to get an equitable outcome, uh, we really need to have ownership of our seeds, uh, of our means of production, of, of the food that we eat and how we get it to each other. So, um, so I got into farming to grow Southeast Asian crops and now um, I'm known as a grain queen. <laughs> so we can talk about that later, but yeah, uh, the majority of what I produce and that, that really gets out to people now is um, uh, heirloom varieties of grains that are climate adapted to California. And I, I dry farm them um, and really bring that climate science experience as well as my sort of waste management background to inform to inform how I farm and, and ultimately all of that is rooted in my Buddhist upbringing. So I'll leave it there. Thanks, May. Uh, Vera, can you tell us about your journey to becoming a farmer? Sure. I, I wanna just listen to my talk about disaster management. Sure. <laughs> but uh, I am originally from the Eastern Agency of the Navajo Reservation in uh, what would be considered the Northwest corner of New Mexico. And uh, I have always been a part of growing things. Um, my family was uh, one of the families in our uh, kind of half mountain, half desert area that um, always had a substantial garden that we canned from and um, shared with our neighbors across the road and uh, aunts and uncles up and down the, the highway that kind of crosses the reservation. Um, when I came to school, I came more on a principle of uh, social justice and um, understanding more clearly the struggle of Black folks. For myself as a multi-ethnic Black person, I wanted to know uh, very clearly uh, what it was that was so uh, rampant in my veins and causing so much anger and so much like uh, quest for justice in me. And so I studied that and it came quite clearly uh, that the greatest autonomy that we're missing as folks of color is our relationship with our food. Um, it's been extracted from our culture and it used to be the principle again of our culture. It used to be um, the premise for all parts of life because water and food. <laughs> Hello. So uh, I started working in the urban farms in the Twin Cities area and uh, became a part of the local growing community, knowing other growers in this community and programs that were looking to um, recreate the bonds that brown people have had historically with the land and the relationship and kinship that that has always um, nurtured amongst people in our times of peace. And so, you know, I am growing my own family and 
with my partner, we were looking for ways to um, build a business, something that our children could participate in and something that was restorative and helpful and wasn't just another extractive um, kind of corporate look at how to be in business with your community. Uh, so he was hellbent and we started planning on trees. And um, as it stands, there's 21,000 trees plus in the ground that were each put in with his hands, one at a time, um, row after row after row. And we um, have a large scale garden that we steward. I don't really like to use the word steward because the land grows me. I can't grow the land, <laughs> but uh, it's just one of the, one of the, the things that was given to me in my early life was the opportunity for a relationship with land and a relationship with understanding that um, our, our plant relatives are just as important, if not more than we are, because uh, they sustain generations. And uh, the better we treat them and the more uh, um, intent we have in the ways that we feed our families and our communities, the more we relax the other social issues that um, constrain us and separate us. So it's very important to me as a brown person to um, make space for other growers and um, be a place where folks can um, see themselves as growers and carry that on as a principled life, um, a life of investment in a different way that isn't, you know, in the corporate lens of what is success and what is a life. And I hope that those values are um, lived in my children and shared with who comes along next. Thank you, Vera. So when I think about farmers, um, especially in the course of the past couple of years working with Real Food Media, I think of people like Vera, like my, um, most of the farmers that I think of now are farmers of color. But when you look at it across, like when you look at the numbers across the United States, that's not actually what the face of farming looks like, right? 98% of farmland is owned by, by white people. Um, and over in the course of the next decade, by 2030, about 400 million acres of U.S. farmland is set to change hands. Um, and the big question is, who will it go to? Will it go to someone like Bill Gates or will it go to people like, like us? Um, so there's a really great opportunity here to change the face of farming. Uh, Maya, can you tell us how your organization, Minnow, that you co-founded with Neil, fits into this? Sure, how we're going to transition 98% of the farmland equitably. Ah, yes, well, so again, Minnow is an organization uh, focused on securing farmland tenure for farmers of color and indigenous peoples. And um, I think maybe digging into the context a little bit more, um, again, being a farmer myself and a farmer organizer, um, I understand how critical land is for people to, to be able to practice their um, worldviews, their traditional 
agricultural ecological um, relationships uh, and to do that sustainably, right? It's like, if you don't have secure farmland tenure, how can you plan? How can you um, know that the 21,000 trees that you plant um, is for naught? Because you could be pushed off and then someone could just bulldoze it all out. Um, and so that that's critical and it's a critical way for people to, um, to pass on that knowledge, a knowledge that's also important for us to have as an alternative to the dominant system that we know is not working for us. Um, it needs to be alive and rooted somewhere. At the same time, we recognize that securing farmland for farmers of color uh, can't be a perpetuation of settler colonialism. Um, to, to claim this land, even as newer, relatively newer Americans, um, if that's just perpetuating the displacement, the injury from a history of genocide that is continuing through process of you know, structural policies, um, that, that it's really, it, we can't have a peaceable world. And personally, uh, for me as a, coming from you know, a refugee background, my family came over as refugees, but seeing that as um, you know, extending from a long history of us um, facing colonialism from China over 2000 years, off and on, um, thinking about what it meant for our people to have 400 years of independence and then 200 years of colonialism and, and, and the, that um, history of resistance, right? Over, over so long, um, what seems like you know, for the history of the U.S., you know, how that maps onto my own people's history. Um, you know, what does it look like for for me to be a part of tipping that scale? Um, not so that it goes back and forth, but hopefully for one where we can arrive at a different equilibrium uh, where everybody belongs. And so that that's really the work of Minnow is is figuring out really prioritizing um, indigenous sovereignty and also having the conversations to figure out what is the place recognizing where we are at now, um, because there's nowhere else for us to go. <laughs> you know, we, we, uh, this, is, this is the planet we inhabit, um, but how do we do this equitably so that we can be equal, so that we can have a true democracy? Um, and in that light, right, Minnow is doing this kind of interim work that really needs to be done um, as a society that our government needs to take, take responsibility for because the act of reparations is the responsibility of our government. Um, in the meantime, here we are, nonprofit in California, <laughs> working on it. And, and to, to, to name some of the examples of what that looks like for us, right, is that, um, for example, there is a, a, a beach up in Northern California that um, that Caltrans, for those of you familiar with the California context, anyways, they're the California Transportation Division, um, and they had this land that they've been holding for a while. They recognized, I mean, the politics of it or the reality of it, is that they weren't going to use it. So they're like, okay, we're going to give this back. And in order to give this back, though, um, it became a part of a bill. So the legislature got involved and said that 
in order for the tribes to receive this land, they need to become a nonprofit, which is a bit absurd considering that these are federally recognized tribes, state recognized tribes, and then they, there's still this um, extra bureaucracy that's thrown in. But hey, okay, so this is an opportunity to give land back. And so Minnow is involved in, in particular, my, my colleague, Neil Thapar, who's an attorney, is, has been involved in facilitating and kind of uh, helping the tribe, the tribes involved to determine what entity they want to be. They ultimately decided to be a nonprofit under uh, tribal governance and law. So not a California nonprofit, but a tribal nonprofit, which is very significant. Um, and, and really exercising this existing infrastructure within a white supremacist system to try to, to put it into their own terms, right? And, um, and so, yeah, we're excited that the governor did sign the bill for that land transfer to happen. And um, yeah, we'll be looking forward to further ushering that actual transition to happen of this, of this beach. Um, so that's what it looks like on, on the land return, land rematriation side. Um, in those areas that are a little bit more fuzzy, right, that I was mentioning of trying to bring people together is that um, I think I'm just going to focus on the farmer piece for a little bit is that when, when we think about how we're going to hold the land, right, technically transferring land is going to be the easier part. It, it's, it's challenging financially, but there is a lot of money in this country we could shift that. That's, that's a technicality. Um, if our government said we want to return the land, that's the way that the government said we're going to take all the land. You know, it's a technicality that is, uh, is possible. What's going to be really challenging for us is how to decolonize our ways, our relationships to the land and to each other so that we can steward it together in ways that don't replicate the harm. Um, and in farming in particular, our relationships to each other that don't depend on the extraction of labor from those who are closest to the land to the benefit of the people who are the furthest away. And so um, worker cooperative ownership, the workers of the land owning the business and also owning the land is really key. And how do we draw from our, exist, our, our cultures that already hold those values those kernels that um, are left from, from being husked by our society, right? Um, how do we grow those so that we can practice having that relationship with each other to co-govern um, and, and value each other's labor um, and knowledge in, in relation to the land and again, to our communities. So uh, another portion of our work, and this is where most of my work lies, is in supporting that worker cooperative farm development so that there's a group of people who are then on the land um, and also then connecting them with the people whose lands these, these are, right? So in one context, it's the kumiai. Um, and and how, do we, how do we ensure that indigenous peoples have the first right of refusal for a property that the farmers might be interested in? And not just, again, having it be a technicality, but having it be a conversation about how these farmers may be 
um, in support of indigenous sovereignty from a, um, from that this food production perspective, and again, not in a relationship of exploitation. So these are questions we're still grappling with, and at the same time, um, we can still focus on the on exercising our our muscles, um, growing up these um, these seeds that we already have of cooperation. Um, and I think critically, when we talk about this transition, you know, when you named sort of the 400 million acres that will transition, how do we do that in a way that doesn't perpetuate the, um, the flaws of what exists, right? Which has been premised on the idea of a uh, heteronormative family owning a, uh, owning a property and then having all of this sort of undervalued labor be on it. Um, and that that inheritance has, has broken down. And so that's why we're going to see this massive land transfer. But how do we actually have some sort of um, communal ownership, a commons relationship to the land and that those who work the land also can build equity on it? So these are, um, these are bigger questions for us that um, again, yeah, bring us back to this opportunity that's going to happen for land to be uh, reconsidered in our relationship with it in a in a technical sense, in terms of who who's on it, who governs it, who makes decisions, but also in this um, in this community sense of how we hold it as a commons, knowing that it is a fictitious commodity, um, and also how do we connect with it spiritually, knowing that it is something that um, is so deeply tied to identity, heritage, and legacy, and what we will want to, future generations to be able to, to be on. Thank you, Mai. Um, it sounds like the, the work that y'all are doing, not sounds like, but it is the work that y'all are doing, it's so important, so like sticky, and um, lots of important processes to think about as you're going through it. Uh, and you mentioned tipping the scales. And I know, Vera, you're part of the Midwest Farmers of Color Collective or co-founder of the Midwest Farmers of Color Collective. Can you tell us about this collective, like why you formed and what you're doing together? Yes. I just really wanted to quick say something about what Maya was talking about in that um, one thing that I can I, I think about is how there's this huge land back. Like it's, you know, people are wearing it on t-shirts and on hats and everything. And it's so funny to me because um, it seems a lot like land back, but make it colonized. You know, like they, they want the principles of white supremacy and, you know, the system to garner who's going to get what piece and how, who has access to it and how to use it. But they still are are looking for you know this notion of liberation and it's it's that is a um, I think a, a example of a way that um, land has been dispersed in in those kinds of uh, mindsets would be the allotment process that the United States government has with tribes. Um, I have probably a thousand acres in allotment um, with all of the pieces that I own, but we can't do anything with it because you don't necessarily know who all the owners are. You just all know that there's this piece of land that every ha everybody has a percentage of. And so 
so no one does anything with it. So it just sits there. So it doesn't do anything. And um, that is a clear guide to how we won't be able to rematriate the land with uh, colonized principles and, you know, worksheets. <laughs> but uh, so um, I am a co-founder of the Midwest Farmers of Color Collective. And um, initially, we wanted to make a space, especially for growers who are brown. And my kind of pillar in the investment is that I wanted to make a place where um, the mental health and community aspects uh, for farmers of color were taken into consideration and um, valued and nurtured because of the fact that farmers um, without the problems and circumstances of brown skin live a very isolated life, um, struggle more so than the larger population with suicide for completely different reasons than why, you know, the, the larger world struggles with suicide. There's is a loss of this deep relationship with land and not being able to um, kind of deliver with the knowledge that they have. And that is heartbreaking and was one of my initial callings for making a space for brown farmers because I didn't want to know what I know and not help um, to balm that aspect in my reach. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Mai Nguyen, Vera F. Allen, and host Tiffany Patton. So um, we decided that what we'd first do is um, hold a convening and see who, who would show up, who considered themselves a grower, who considered themselves a farmer. And it was amazing in the middle of Minnesota where, you know, I'm not going to talk <laughs> specific numbers, but there's a little bit of a lot of different people here. And uh, we had a beautiful turnout. We had tribal people um, from the local tribes. We had um, multiple Asian countries represented, um, spe English speakers, non-English speakers, uh, just, the, uh, just a beautiful kind of arrangement of folks who were all dedicated to um, at least being in space with other people who see themselves as having a relationship with growing things. And uh, the things that we are coming around the corner on and, and understanding that our community really desires from us is um, taking stands on policy and creating actions around policy specifically for folks of color. And in Minnesota, um, we have far, like we're, we're, we're essentially the picture of what farming looks like because we have, you know, maybe 1%, one and a half percent of our land ownership uh, is folks of color that farm. And um, they are talking about 
how they're living in these rural communities with these families who have been generational farmers. And now this generation is tapped out. They don't want to do it anymore. So grandpa's 80 years old and uh, he's trying to figure out, you know, where this legacy is going to go. Who's going to want to pay the taxes on this without, you know, even farming it. Um, and so we are building up this thing that we call the anti-racist agricultural timeline. And we've had the opportunity to present it um, at least, you know, locally. And it's been amazing. Um, just this last weekend, um, I went to Southern Minnesota. We presented the timeline and we were in a room full of um, maybe 60 plus year old farmers who were really looking at their legacy and how they were going to be uh, in relationship with potential farmers of color who could really come in. They were thinking about, you know, what is it going to look like for these brown folks to come into my rural town? How can I feel more powerful about having my Black Lives Matter sign in, you know, nowhere, Minnesota? What if, you know, I'm, I'm inviting a threat onto myself? And so I think that something that's really important to uh, MFCC is that we kind of take it on the chin for everyone else. You know, we, we go into these communities where folks don't look like us and we express that, you know, we're, we're in a farming community. Um, we're, we're, we have to, we have the same land to work with. We have the same tools to work with. We have the same, you know, um, basics that are necessary for farming for anybody to do it. So how do we make it so that our food system kind of rotates into uh, the equity that we all deserve? Because one of the things that we teach is that, you know, white supremacy is bad for white people. So <laughs> imagine what your life could be if that wasn't something that was a tug and a pull um, consistently. And further imagine that your brown relatives are going through this on a regular basis while they're still trying to be in this system that um, extracted their science, extracted their heritage, extracted their relationship and their labor, and now needs that same um, thing that they stole and is depending on us to give it back. So, you know, there, there are a number of ideas at play in the fact that um, I think when we're talking about what uh, brown growers are um, endeavoring in, uh, I think we forget that they can decide they don't, they don't want to give it back. <laughs> they don't, we don't, we don't have to give it back. And um, how do we make space for that too? Because um, we are entitled to the same freedom and liberation that everyone else is. So um, the important thing is to make sure that we are um, in a clear, loving relationship with the land first and foremost. And um, I think MFCC um, not only promotes that, but also um, creates a place where the empowered farmers of color 
can take those positions in a room and not have to be studied by the dominant culture taking apart what their very real feelings about um, something that is uh, in their DNA and that they're fighting with on a regular basis. Um, so yeah, I think that's what we're here for. <laughs> that's what we did it for. <laughs> nice, thank you. There are a couple of threads or a couple of things I want to like pull on that you mentioned. Um, you were talking about MFCC and wanting to create policy that um, benefits uh, farmers of color. And I know, Maya, you were involved in getting the California Farmer Equity Act passed in 2017. So can you tell us a little bit about the implications of that act and what has changed since it passed? Yeah, and I'll just give people a little bit of context for why we created that too. Um, it was November, 2016 very memorable time for US Americans. Um, and uh, so there were those of us who were seeing how uh, the change in our federal administration was just lighting up and giving all the racists a hall pass, especially in rural areas to be violently racist towards people of color. Um, and uh, it felt incredibly uh, daunting and demoralizing at the time. Um, I didn't really, I uh, am a practice anarchist, so I really did not care about you know, sort of that kind of federal level formal politics. But it was a time where for me personally, it was a recognition of the importance of kind of that this framework that we're in um, and, and its impacts on us in a very uh, detailed, um, visceral, carceral way uh, and corporeal way. Um, and so there were those of us who in trying to crawl out of this period of disillusionment and uh, befuddlement um, came together to try to see what we could do for communities of color in rural areas, especially agricultural areas, because that's that's where all of us were working in. And um, over many conversations um, and with those involved who were more versed in policy, formal politics, we recognize that kind of the, the most, the baseline common denominator that we should try to push for was getting the state of California to recognize that farmers of color exist. Um, so, you know, peel away all of my desires for like totally changing forms of knowledge in our research institutions and seeds and all of that. Well, it's like all we could get to was just getting the state to recognize people of color exist, particularly in the agricultural sector. Um, and this was significant because this any state policy that referenced people of color under the official term of socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers, it was referencing federal language. And, and actually in the latter part of um, 2017, 2018, the federal government was going to get rid of the, the policies that had those definitions. So absent of those, the state level policies would be meaningless. Right? that the reference point would be gone, it'd be untethered. So it was important for the state to actually have its own definition. And um, 
so the Farmer Equity Act, one, has created the state definition. It also mandated that the uh, California Department of Food and Agriculture, CDFA, have a farmer equity advisor who reports directly to the Secretary of Agriculture. There are only four others in the cabinet, so that's, that's very significant to have that direct line to the Secretary of Agriculture. Um, and to create means for farmers of color to shape policy, research, uh, programs within CDFA. Um, since then, I think there's, I think one, we can look at sort of the policy, uh, what's happened since the policy, the, the act has been passed kind of in the realm of CDFA. And then I think there's also, we could look at the collaborative, uh, the California Farmer Justice Collaborative that passed that act and what has happened with that group. And I mentioned that group because I think what I've understood is that there are some connections between that group and the group that Vero is, is a part of. Um, and just, I think the more that um, grassroots entities can learn from each other and, and, and talk to each other about, you know, our dreams and our also like our learnings. Um, yeah, I just wanna make that opening because I would love to hear what, what Vera's group has been going through and, and the learnings there. And yeah, this anti-racist timeline sounds really cool. Uh, <laughs> it's very it's super cool. It's really, <laughs> really cool. <laughs> yeah, like what's possible as a collective um, and also what hinders us. And um, so anyways, I think on going back to your question, Tiffany, is sort of what has happened since the passing of the Farmer Equity Act is uh, that the CDFA did hire the Farmer Equity Advisor, um, who is not a melanated person. Um, and, um, and four years after that person was hired, then a uh, advisory committee of farmers of color was, was um, formed um, and, and I serve on it. And, and it's just very clear that it's an under-resourced entity um, and it's our, you know, we are the inaugural group and much of my interest is how to, how do we really institutionalize the presence of people of color in decision-making um, so that our social movements are not something that we have to keep replicating, but it's in there. And there are clear structures for our decision-making to be, to have power and to have influence. And that has really been um, a process that has, and questions, inquiries and desires that have been undermined consistently in these meetings. Um, and there's no oversight, right? So there's, there's no other accountability mechanism for someone to come in and say, hey, you're not setting up these, this infrastructure to set a precedence for the future advisory committees to come in and have you know, meaningful contributions to CDFA programs. Um, and there's so many details that I can get into in terms of the ways that we're, we're certainly more symbolic than uh, functional. Um, and then even I got an email yesterday that was about um, proposing that 
the California Farmer Justice Collaborative be the manager of this advisory committee instead of CDFA, which is like, well, the point of this bill was for CDFA to have these kinds of committees. So, you know, there's a TBD element of this. Um, I do talk a, more about these details in a podcast that's uh, by California Ag Roots, which is um, produced by um, the California Institute for Rural Studies. It's a recent podcast and there are others who are interviewed. So for those who are interested in other elements of sort of like what has happened since the passing of the Farmer Equity Act, I would highly recommend listening to that episode. Um, like I said, so there's the policy side. You know, it, it, again, there are benefits that the state does have this definition. Now, subsequent bills that are agricultural do include this. Again, because there's no entity pushing for these bills to have a greater proportion of the funding go to socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers, you know, it's oftentimes sort of, um, you know, it's just another set of words that's been shoved into another set of <laughs> um, uh, listings of peoples that you kind of need to include in order to make a <laughs> uh, a bill look like it's not, uh, you know, exclusive. Um, but it's still the same bills, right? It's still the same bills that were created by and for white farmers. And so, um, again, it's being used as a means to have equity of access, but again, not equity of outcomes because we were not at all a part of designing these things. Uh, based on our based on our needs and and what we um, desire to have as the outcomes, um, and then I'll just briefly touch on the sort of the organizing side. Right, is that yes, we came together and we we focused on a policy, and I think it's really interesting hearing Vera talk about the the group wanting to talk to focus more on policy, and yet has also done a lot of work to build relationships with each other. And I think that is really key is to have those strong trusted relationships with each other to then spawn particular projects, but that are rooted in, in a community relationship of, of respect and um, participation and inclusivity. And for, for us, um, you know, there were many of us who saw that, you know, retaining farmer equity isn't just about policy. Policy is one tool, but we still need to transform the way that people even think about farmers, who is farming, who's the owner, but who should really be benefiting. And so there was that tension, and that tension mapped out onto who was a part of a nonprofit as opposed to a farmer, you know, an advocate uh, who had a salary, uh, or also, and also race. We were a, a multiracial group. But certainly there were tensions that, that fell along those, those lines, um, such that ultimately the, the ideas, processes, and all of these things that were set up by people of color were also constantly undermined by the white nonprofit uh, members. And so it's one thing to set up the infrastructure. Again, it's another to set up systems of accountability. And, um, and a deep learning of mine is, Thinking back to what my mentor, Dr. Carol Zippert says, is that we need to practice equity amongst ourselves. And 
when we do that, when as a collaborative, a grassroots collaborative, we practice equity amongst ourselves, you know, that is when we can really create these projects that are a reflection of that, that really enable all of us to be liberated. So I'll leave it there. <laughs> Thanks, May. Um, what you're saying reminds me of the fact that the USDA just announced it's like first ever equity commission and just thinking about how there's all of these like advisory boards, advisory rules, like com commissions that are supposed to, um, I don't know, like provide like access or hopefully equitable outcomes. But then as you mentioned, there's no accountability. And also these groups don't actually have any power. Like a lot of times, like you can advise, but it doesn't mean that they're going to take up what you say. And so just some like further thought about how creating this advisory committee isn't an advisory anything isn't really doing much. It seems to me it's like very, it can be very performative and we actually need to transfer decision-making power over. Uh, Vera, yes. you want to say something? Yeah, um, when the, when there was first kind of the, the stop of the uh, debt relief for black farmers that um, there was all the outrage and, uh, but when it was first coming out, our Senator Tina Smith, uh, said that she was going to hold this kind of like um, session so that she could hear what we wanted from her as one of the senators who was signing on to um, ultimately help it to pass. And uh, they kind of hung up on me a little bit <laughs> in the whole conversation because I said, is this going to be an opportunity for us to hold the purse? and do the deciding for ourselves and what we need based on us talking to each other? Or is this us helping you to, you know, gain some political capital and uh, then just put another kind of referee in the middle who says, oh, here's $5 for you and here's $10 for you. Because if, you're, if we're just helping you to give ourselves another overseer, we have no reason to support you. We have no reason to put our names on what you're talking about. Um, so I just, I think that when we're talking about um, the policies, I think it is an absolute that the policy is gonna come, you know, 10 years after the people have already been in relationship with one another and making these things work. Um, and then somebody will come in and discover it as uh, colonization usually does, put a name on it, and you know th that that will hopefully potentially become what policy is. But we are we're also moving in a direction where uh, we understand that, for instance, if you say African farmer, we have African farmers from all over Africa. And even though they have a person in our collective who is in relationship with all of the different folks and is so happy to be the person who is kind of um, helping people navigate how to uh, get their um, make their way into becoming farmers in the United States from their their home countries, uh, he has recognized that you know I I'm great. But if I think about myself as, you know, kind of the, the African portal, 
we don't have anybody for the multi-ethnic Asian people. We don't have anybody for all of the native people. We don't have, you know, we have to start setting it up so that um, these smaller kind of wheels can be turning and and giving each other what they need and then having an infrastructure that is so tight that when everyone comes back together there the the things that have been separating us for so long um, become secondary to what it is to grow these things and um, be in relationship with our land. So I think um, a lot of these things are coming together as we, again, come into this whole conversation about who has land, because that's the other thing. You may be a grower. And one of the things that we are recognizing here in the collective is that many of our growers, 90% of our growers don't own their land. They're on a plot somewhere or they're in community with a number of people on a larger plot. And that comes back into that brings up this, you know, this whole other thing that happens um, that kind of looks back at colonization again, where it's like, well, these these policies are for people who own land and do X amount of dollars of business with their growing um, their, their, with their land and their access. But then you have these folks who, you know, they will ne they're never going to be able to fill an order for, you know, all of the TGIFs or whatever, um, whoever, you know, you might get into relationship and do business with. You don't have that capacity because you don't have that land. So um, some of the things that fundamentally have to happen with folks of color when we're figuring out how we're going to pivot into our autonomy in this economy is that we have to talk about um, how to negotiate what's available in the way of land. Because the other thing is, is that you can't grow on every piece of land that exists, you know? So just because you have 100,000 acres, that doesn't mean you can grow on 100,000 acres. So um, again, it goes back always to how we are in relationship with the land, regardless of who our ancestors were. You know, we're here now. How are we going to work it out for everyone? You're listening to a TNS conversation with my Nguyen, Vera F. Allen, and host Tiffany Patton. You mentioned earlier um, about uh, sort of like white farmers and American agriculture and how it's like extracting people's labor, extracting people's relationships, but also extracting um, like black and indigenous and other people of colors like science. And I want to talk a little bit about like regenerative agriculture and farm and permaculture. And I, there's been critiques of both just for doing that same thing, right? Like taking methods that other people have been using forever and like slapping a new name on it. Um, and it's become like very, it's, I think there's a lot of buzz, especially around regenerative agriculture these days. So can you tell us a little bit about um, about like that critique and if there are any mis misconceptions around regenerative agriculture and permaculture and uh, like what, if anything, is missing from the discourse around around those phrases? I think what's missing is the premise that uh, it started with us. 
you're welcome. <laughs> like the only reason there's any kind of regenerating going on is because you broke it. And I think that that is what's principally wrong with a lot of the language is that it connotes this kind of like um, gonna fix it up after all of this, but doesn't make any commentary on the large scale destruction of the earth and uh, kind of eliminates any sort of responsibility. It eliminates any kind of opportunity for us to, you know, be strengthened in unity around the fact that we're, we're all fighting what um, has become of industrialization. Um, and it's, it's also an opportunity to kind of maintain this narrative of patriarchy that, you know, we still need great white father to come in and help us and show us and direct us and dream for us and envision for us. And what in fact we need is um, restorative justice that allows us our autonomy to remember the things that were taken away and to be in community where our leaders are the, um, the actual experts and not because they went through a white supremacist kind of badge um, opportunity, but because they know the land and it, and and they have um, they have a blood relationship with that land and and blood memory with with land. Piro is totally spot on. Stop Columbusing and give back the land. <laughs> so, but yeah. Yeah. I have one last question for you both, which is, um, I know like we spent a lot of time today talking about the challenges uh, facing BIPOC farmers and a lot of, a lot of discourse um, goes to that. Um, but I'm curious, what are some of the like joys of being a BIPOC farmer? I think, um, I, you know, I think one of the, the greatest attributes that I have is that I grew up with an autonomy and I talk about autonomy a lot because it's, I think that that's one of the, the, the grave ills of um, our society is that people don't know how to be alone. They don't know how to be unstimulated by electricity. Like they can, they, it's, it's, a, it's a great piece that I feel so, um, just blessed to be able to enjoy with my children and to know that they are gonna be centered in a place that recognizes that this life is this long, but all of these things are in this dance together with you um, in creation and death. So I, I, I feel a tremendous amount of joy being able to give my children that kind of fortitude and foundation for um, going out into the world and also growing their own lives and their own legacies. I think that, you know, in a time when we're experiencing these overlapping fiery crises, um, I've found that, you know, when, we, when we've talked about needing to see our way out of it, uh, I think that in the broader discourse, there's a failure of the imagination in terms of how, how to get out. 
But I think by having roots in a different way of being and doing that, I know that there's another way. And that while there are its, its own complications, you know, I think about how my dad told me that the reason why my parents had me was that, you know, even though their country is gone, uh, it's that they wanted me to be able to pass on the good of our culture um, so that could live on. And so I think about the things that I've tried to um, uh, hold for my parents and that I'm also trying to pass on and that it does expand our imagination of what other worlds are possible, but also what other worlds are already here. There's a question now for both of you, which is, do you have action items for people who are, uh, for those of us who are watching and what can we do to do to support your good work and that of your allies? I would say give uh, black and brown projects money. I mean, that's, that's give our science money, give our leadership money, um, give causes money because that is what that's what we're living in unless you have land in which case give people land um those are the two greatest action items i uh would offer i belong to a number of um african american indigenous groups that are about farming and about um land opportunity and nobody has money and nobody has land. They have the science, they have the willingness and the passion and the foresight and the, um, the familial pull to do it. They just don't have the basics of what makes this economy go around and that's the land and the money. Yeah, certainly that. And I think about um, how, do you, how do people support that who have different means, right? And then I think there's the um, the direct giving by those who have those means, uh, look at you philanthropy and your 5% that only of your endowment that, that goes to <laughs> projects. What about the rest? Um, but also really, um, structurally, right. That there are ways that we can affect that redistribution in a way that may might not involve your personal money. Um, but really that, our government is responsible <laughs> for these inequities um, by institutionalizing it. So wherever you are, I know that the audience is from across the state, um, some from out of the out of outside of the US, but really thinking about how do you affect your, your representatives? Who are you choosing to represent um, your values? And are they going to end that filibuster? Are they going to vote for a farm bill that actually supports farmers who are on the land doing what is essentially regenerative, but is very culturally rooted in a broader worldview that is ecological and equitable? Um, so I think there is both, yes, those direct actions. How do we practice equity amongst ourselves? But how do we also practice that equity amongst our broader society to create a structural change that will redistribute uh, for us to have a peaceful society. 
Thank you. Okay, so another question in the chat is, what do you think about community land trusts? Is it a good model to support sovereignty for black and brown farmers, especially urban farmers? I personally think that I have siblings and they don't want to do stuff with me. You know what I mean? I have aunties and uncles. They don't want to do stuff with me, you know, but maybe one of their uh, friends or colleagues has inspired them in a way to be in community around these things. And I think that we're going to have to use all the different ways that we can that are forward leaning. Now, a community land trust for me, I don't, I don't have to think about that. I'm lucky I have access to land. So am I going to tell six people, 20 people that want to come together on this notion of being, you know, land uh, taker carers? <laughs> I'm not, I, I can't do that. So I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily um, unsupportive or, or pro-support of sovereignty, but I know that it is a rotation towards autonomy and um, whether it's the one that I take or someone else takes is there's, there's just too many access points that have to be regarded as valuable to the ultimate change, in my opinion. And in my work uh, around land commoning and trying to create land access and security tenure, the um, land trusts come up a lot, community land trusts. And I see it as in the, in the spheres that I'm in, land trusts are put forth as the solution when it's really a tool that we need to consider when we actually engage communities and those who have relationship to the land and see what they want and then determine what are the tools that are available uh, and how do we put them together so that that reflects what the people want. Whereas often I see, it's like, let's do this community land trust. Let's try to fit what the people want into that trust model. And um, it ends up uh, drawing from the existing land trusts and, and the, those examples there, which are oftentimes, well, based on a, a predefined definition of community that is exclusive. Also, um, in terms of having that trust, those who are governing it aren't necessarily the ones who are on the land. So you're still perpetuating that divide between who's reliant on the land and who's, who has a say about it. Um, when I think about you know, Cory Booker's, Senator Cory Booker's proposal to you know, have conservation easements, land trusts, and then put a black farmer on it, I see where he's coming from. And it's also, again, this failure of the imagination about what it means for us to have a collective liberatory relationship with the land. Is it perpetuating the idea that there's a sole person who decides what happens to you know, hundreds of acres and, and having that everywhere and not really even considering their relationship to others? Um, but really it's when we think about furthering indigenous sovereignty and also you know, who's going to be on the land, what are the tools that are needed and I think there are possibilities for community land trusts to be incorporated. And at the same time, I don't think that we should put the tool before the people. 
Thank you, Mai. Thank you, Vera. And I think we will uh, close this out. Um, again, Vera, Mai, I really appreciate you both and sharing so much of your work and your wisdom and just yourselves with us. Uh, I admire you both so much. And I'm like happy anytime I get to share some space with either one of you, even though it's only been virtual up until this point. That's going to change, though. I know it. I it know is. it. <laughs> And thank you again to the New School at Commonweal for hosting us. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you, Tiffany, for all of your work and for bringing these wonderful people onto our webinar, for sure. Just another reminder as we close up here that we will have recordings produced on our website. You can find us on YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, and uh, if you like and subscribe, you'll get more notifications about conversations like this. Join us next time for the next conversations in this series. We've got another one coming up next month and also in April. So thanks for joining us. My Nguyen, Vera F. Allen, and Tiffany Patton, thank you for joining us at the New School of Commonweal. See you next time, everyone. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Mai Nguyen, Vera F. Allen, and host Tiffany Patton, co-presented with Real Food Media. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.